Today's episode of the Sixers Beat is a mailbag episode where Rich and I go over questions submitted by you to listeners. Questions range from optimal spacing around Embiid post-ups, what improvements you would attribute to Doc Rivers, his coaching staff, and their schemes, what kind of contract Seth Curry would get in the open free agent market, and which of the Sixers' young players has the most upside. Today's episode was originally scheduled to be released on Wednesday, but when news of what was going on in the nation's capital came out, we decided to push it back. Because it is a mailbag episode, it focuses more on early season trends than it does about a specific game or games that were played, so it is all still relevant. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing great, man. But you know who I'm not doing better than? The best team in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers. We know that the first seven games of the season means it's just smooth sailing from here to the title. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. Uh, look, well, like we joke, but this is that like that is legitimately a tenth of the season. That is a significant portion of the season. And they are sitting here with a six and one record. Um, there, there is nothing that says championship, like beating the crap out of Orlando and Charlotte in games <laughs> six and seven of the season. Well, they are. The positive is they are on a four game winning streak competition. I mean, look, Toronto, we thought was a, they didn't play well, but we thought it was a good win. We thought that was a, a good team. They beat. They're struggling. Um, Orlando was playing real well, but I don't think anybody really buys that. And then two against uh, the Hornets who nobody really expects to be a, a very legitimate team. So there's a whole bunch of unknown. And I'm sure we'll get into that over the course of the podcast. The majority of this podcast here today will be a um, mailbag podcast. We will have taken some questions that we received after soliciting them in the last pod, and we will talk about them. You know, but right now, six and one, the only team with one loss in the entire NBA. They currently have the 15th ranked offense, which last pod, not even a week ago, it was the 22nd ranked offense. So they're going up. Helps when you play Charlotte, helps when you make a lot of shots. Uh, and the top-ranked defense, which is the same as it was the last time that we recorded. Can't go up from that. Can't go up from that. You can get better, but you cannot go up in ranking. Uh, so they are playing well. And the overriding question is, what does that truly mean? Like, what are we looking at here? Are we looking at a legitimate title contender? Or are we looking at a slightly better team that makes more sense than the one we watched last year? And to be honest, I think the big answer to that is to be determined. But we'll see. Certainly a great start, though, and I was joking a little bit about the championship stuff, but if you've paid attention to the rest of the league at the beginning of the season, I mean, there are always weird results. Sometimes bad teams beat good teams. Even even the good teams, the elite of the elite, still lose 20 to 22 games. You know, it's if, if you're getting above that territory, you're pretty awesome. There, there have been even more weird results yeah. on a, on a night to night basis. These, uh, these back to back series yep. ha- have produced weird results. Like I-, I think I saw Mark Stein tweet out today that there's been, I don't know the exact number. I think there's been somewhere in the f- number of 15 to 20 of them already. Only two home teams have taken care of business 
in the uh, your Philadelphia 76ers being one of them in the back to back. Don't ask me who the other one is. I have no <laughs> idea who it is. But <laughs> if uh, and not only did they win both of those games, but we're talking about a 15 point win in one and a 17 point win in the other. Neither of them are particularly close. They have played well. And again, it's the Hornets like don't make too much of it, but they have played. They have both won. They've gotten the results that you want and they have looked pretty good doing it, too. You're getting both the Sydney Dean and the Billy Hoyle here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, no, they, they they smoked the Hornets and and watching the Hornets play. I was I was not very impressed by a lot of it outside of, you know, LaMelo Ball is an interesting player. He's, he's certainly uh, yeah. yeah, he certainly takes gambles and is uh, is very much the uh, the the Gen Z basketball player. I believe somebody said on uh, on Twitter, which I thought was a good way of putting it. But, you know, you look at the Hornets, they beat Brooklyn, they beat Dallas by 100 in Dallas, and the Sixers really haven't had that result happen to them. They had the one bad performance against a Cleveland team that, again, we thought was going to be bad. They've been pretty good yeah. to start the year, and it was without Joel Embiid. Second, I think the Sixers have the number one defense. I think Cleveland has a number two defense, which is just mind-boggling, just completely and utterly mind-boggling. Did not predict that one. I mean, and they're coming off two years of some of the worst defense in NBA history. Yeah, with a backcourt that, while is pretty excited, the old uh, the old Sexland group there is is not stopping anybody. <laughs> One of the top nicknames in NBA history. Uh, sure. I don't know who came up with that. It, it's it, but it is a uh, yeah. Colin, I think Sexton. it was Larry Nance. Was it Larry Nance? Okay, okay. Yeah, that seems but- like that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm in full agreement with you. I, I was very much looking forward to them playing Brooklyn, playing some good teams. Yeah, for sure. But I I, I do, you know, we're, we're going to have to wait, although, although Brooklyn's winning by a lot right now. Um, you know, the schedule is going to get some teams that we thought were going to be contenders. Most of them at home, you know, and the Sixers, I, I don't care if there's 20,000 people or just or just media and, and Daryl Morey and Elton Brand, but... They, they they just continue to win there, and it's been a it's been a great start. I, I I will say that regardless of you know the soft schedule at the start of the year, or at least what we think is a soft schedule, I did not expect them to come together and just like you said. I mean, the roster makes sense, but it, I, I'm a little surprised at how quickly it's it's making sense. And, yeah, uh, that's cool. <laughs> and look, you go back to the Toronto game, and it was like, all right, it's great they're grinding out some wins here. But it would be great to see them actually execute well offensively. Well, ever since that, uh, they have executed exceptionally well. And it is a shame that we won't get to see them against Kevin Durant. Uh, we Because that, that stretch, Nets, Nuggets, Hawks. And, and don't sleep on the Hawks. Hawks' offense right now is unbelievable. And then two against Miami, that was a real good measuring stick. And then you had Boston coming up later on in the month. And look, we'll still learn a lot more. But we are certainly seeing, first of all, there's some absences uh obviously kevin durant missing is a huge factor in that game you've got denver who i think right now is two and four they're not clicking on all cylinders right now no. uh, jimmy butler and miami aren't clicking on all cylinders i think butler was averaging like eight points a game through his first three or four games uh so we it, it is it is early days for everyone you're getting some really strange results this is going to be a learning process throughout the entirety of the season um and I would say just measure your takes on both ends. 
don't panic too much. Don't get too excited. Um, I mean, get excited. Like, that's fandom. But, like, in terms of realistic realism, it is, uh, you know, we have a lot to learn yet. But they, I mean, they look real good right now. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being a wet blanket here to start a podcast when they're, they're playing real good basketball right now on both ends of the court. There is something to be said for not having the most chaotic regular season in the world for sure. like they did last year. You know, I think Doc has described it as old school load management, but I would say even besides just limiting Joel's minutes, being able to execute offensively against bad teams and take care of business. I don't care if it's still 72 games. Like it's, there's going to be ups and downs in a season, but at least limiting some of the downs, I, I think there is something to be said for that. Even the season, um, the 2018-19 season where they traded for Jimmy Butler, there was still a lot of drama and a lot of trades during that regular season. And you had a team like Toronto who was load managing Kawhi to, I don't know, 57, 58 wins. Again, I don't know if that's the determining factor in the playoffs, but I would much rather be that team than the Sixers who are coming in chaotic and with them beat hurt and all of those yeah. things. So it's, yeah, it's been a great start. And even despite all that, he's still playing, what, 33, 34 <laughs> minutes a night? Um, you would yeah. lo- I'd love to see that number get down. Uh, there, and To Doc's credit, it looked like Embiid was about to go back in in the fourth quarter in the second game against Charlotte. He got pulled back, which is good to see because you want Embiid a little bit rested, but um, he's still playing a, a touch too many minutes considering you've had three straight blowouts, but I was anyway. stunned that he even checked in at all. I was like, are they yeah. looking at the scoreboard right now? They're up 18 and yeah. Charlotte is showing no signs of coming back in this game, but they, uh, they figured it out. You know, they, they got it. They got it, uh, got it worked out. And the big man took a, took a seat or uh, more than a seat laid down on the, on the baseline. Yep. All right, so do you want to just jump into some, uh, rather than talk too much about the games, just jump into some of these mailbag questions because I'm assuming a lot of them will touch on what uh, what we have seen. Let's do it. All right, so this one comes from Patrick, and his question, I'm, I'm going to shorten it a little bit because it got a little long-winded, but he's basically said that he noticed that a lot, on a lot of Embiid's mid-post post-ups, Seth Curry is on a strong side wing feeding Joel the ball. Uh, his question is, would you rather have the strongest shoot, strongest shooter on that strong side wing, which may make the defense more hesitant to double off of him, or on the weak side and be more likely to be the one taking the three? So he's basically saying that Seth making the entry pass, um, he's staying on that strong side wing. He's not getting a lot of those shots that come from the double teams. It's usually a second or third pass, which is leading to a shot from a lesser shooter of a teammate. Do you like the positioning of Seth Curry on the post-ups? It's a good question from uh, from Patrick, and my answer is maybe. I don't know. I, I guess the, the one major benefit is that the entry pass is easier, yes. I think, with Seth's gravity. And we and have it, seen it, that in the past where that has not always been the case. And a lot of times they like to let uh, JJ make that entry pass for that very reason. Yep. And, you know, it bothered me when you would watch a game last season and they couldn't enter the ball. Yeah. To Embiid. And, and, you know, the announcer would say, you know, well, well, they don't teach the entry pass like they used to, to which I say, well, they actually play defense now. Um, so shut up and, and <laughs> go watch a game from the 80s when they're just, I, I don't even know. They're, they're not making it hard on the offensive it's player whatsoever. Sport. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, so that's the first part of that. 
But with the additional space that Seth has, and again, it's only been a few games, but I'm just thinking of the last two games against Charlotte. Um, it's not even Seth always making the entry pass. Sometimes they are denying Seth the ball. Usually you want to throw it to Seth on the wing so he can enter it to Joe on the left block. Sometimes that path to, pass to Seth is not there because, you know, whoever is guarding him is denying him on the wing. Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, Danny Green, they are entering the ball from angles that they are not t- teaching in uh, in sixth grade CYO. But the reason they can do it is because the, the guy guarding Seth is hugging him. Yeah. So, you know, Ben Simmons can throw the ball over the top from the free throw line to Joel Embiid. Same thing with Tobias. Same thing with Danny Green. So I think there is a benefit of that. Um, does that change if it's Tobias and Green? I don't know because what what the, the question initially said is right. The the first rotation is pretty easy, right? The Seth guy will come down to double Joel most times, and then a player will make that first rotation over to Seth. And then the Sixers get into this passing, drive-in, kick sort of thing, which is kind of fun to watch, honestly, watching a team – attack a scrambled defense. And for what it's worth, you have Harris and Green who, while they're not perfect, they seem pretty adept at it. You know, they, they seem like they're smart enough to, even Danny Green who can barely dribble, he can get into the paint and keep yeah. the the chain moving. Um, and the Sixers are living in those scramble situations. Does does that change if it's Seth Curry? Like, is his guy, if he's on the weak side, is his guy still hugging him? I don't know. I mean, it's... uh. You know, then you get into the really nerdy situations. I mean, um, this is really nerdy for me to say, but I I really enjoy it when they take away the pass to Seth right away. They pre-rotate to him, and Embiid has to fire one across court. He has to make that pass right away. Um, Right now, it seems like they're doing pretty well, but, you know, I'm open-minded about this. Um, What what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think besides what you said, and certainly I think, it helps with the entry pass. I think it helps simplify the game a little bit for Embiid. You know, you're you're sort of taking some of that decision-making responsibility and taking it from Embiid and giving it to Seth and, and making him make that next read, that next pass, um, because you know that scramble is coming towards him. But the other thing I would say is if you put Seth Curry in the corner, it's not like they're going to help off of him. Like, I think you're just going to end up giving an above-the-break above three to a lesser shooter. Um, so it's not—I I, I don't think— you, I think ultimately you're going to get the lesser shooter— taking the shot anyway, except now rather than it being in a, a mad scramble, it's just going to be a second pass in a, in an above the break three, which which is fine. Um, but I, I I think it is going to be tough to get Seth an open corner three if that is your ultimate goal. Um, and he's, I mean, he's getting some, but off a strict post up. Like, I just don't think they're going to rotate off of him like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think right now they're, they're playing it pretty well. Uh, and certainly the results have been great. Like when you start looking at the corner threes they are generating, um, because of the, of you know having Embiid being such a threat and having him being so much better at reading those double teams and making decisive actions from that, and then having you know four guys around him who can make quick or mostly quick decisions to keep that scramble going, like they are in a top ten in corner three pointers made, uh, or a percentage of their shots which are coming from corner threes. There were always 25 to 30 in previous years. Um, so they were doing a much better job of getting those high-value shots. If it's working right now, I wouldn't go changing too much. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. 
If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABasketball and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic. Plus, up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABasketball. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at one 866 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, and Utah, and other states where prohibited. Promotional offers not available in Nevada and New York. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABasketball and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic Plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager. Just, just in general, it is jarring how clean throwing the ball to Embiid is and, and just starting the chain of, of the passing and the rotation. Yeah. That's always been their most efficient play, but it hasn't been clean. Like he's had to fight through a double team and be falling backwards and flop and all of these things. And don't get me wrong. He's still doing that. Sometimes it's Joel Embiid. Wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a Sixers game with him without him on the floor about eight to 10 times a game, but they seem like they have this figured out and he, is inviting the double team at this point. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. And like you mentioned JJ earlier that he used to be the guy on the strong side as well. What, what I'm finding not, I wouldn't say interesting, but they're so much better at this, despite the fact they don't seem to be doing anything differently schematically yeah. from past years. I mean, they, they still Ben is cutting maybe a little bit more. You're seeing that, but but his ultimate destination if he doesn't get the ball, dunker spot, same yep. same thing. And, and Doc has kind of echoed what Brett would say: like you can't have four guys on the perimeter. It's it's too easy to to double. I'm I'm still not sure. I completely agree with that. But you know, I think Kyle asked Embiid after last yeah. night's game. He basically gave him a chance to be like, "Hey, what is the coaching?" Different this year? It was a good question. And Embiid, without naming names, basically said, I got tired of watching Al Horford and Josh Richardson shoot bricks and pass up shots. And it's it's mostly the players. And it's uh, I, I need to see more of this against better defenses. Orlando and New York are the two best defenses that he's faced this year. And he, uh, he certainly carved up Orlando. But I, I would say among... The, the offensive changes this year, how easy this has been posting him up early on. And again, Charlotte was the last two games. That's recency bias. Those are the things we remember the most. It's It's been more impressive him in the post than I think we've seen ever his whole career. Yeah. yeah. Embiid's post or Embiid's quote, uh, at least the first part of it, um, uh, I think is more so that I've, uh, 
rekindled with the love of, you know, just passing. Uh, you know, last year, uh, at times, you know, um, a double and pass and you miss a couple, you miss a lot of shots and, uh, you get frustrating and then you start thinking that, oh, you gotta do everything by yourself because everybody's not making shots this year. Um, I just think I've just been letting the game come to me. Uh, there hasn't been a big change um, when it comes to post facing uh, compared to the last couple of years. It's just the shooters, and uh, you know I just gotta be a winning passer. And you know games like the last two games of the whole season, uh, every every game that I play, you know they keep doubling triple teaming me, uh, trying to take me out of the game and you know, just I just gotta keep uh making the right passes. I'm not I might not get a lot of assists but um you know the whole goal of it is to get someone else open. Uh invite the double or the triple team and you know just get a lot of hockey assists. I think he is I don't entirely agree with him. Like I think he has clearly made progress uh, and I think he is a better passer and I think he's making fewer mistakes. I yeah, think that individual improvements another part of this individual too. improvement. And also like, I think that's a part where like the spacing provided by your teammates makes it easier to make that improvement too. And, and easier to display that improvement. I don't think it's just that he all of a sudden now loves passing. I think it's been, he's been better at diagnosing it and it's been easier to uh, an, an easier riddle to solve than it previously was, but it is pretty telling that he came out there and he was just like, yeah, these guys actually make shots. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's sort of important. You know, I think a lot of it is, not only was Josh Richardson and Al Horford, were they not nearly as good a three-point shooters as Seth Curry and Danny Green, but they were also just, they, the, the, the record scratch moments would drive you insane. And it, yeah. that hurts Embiid so much because the easiest way to stop a scramble is to hesitate, like pump fake, jab step, take a couple meaningless dribbles in the middle of the court. Like they would take, even when they would get these, Spots where you would have an advantage, they would waste it because they would be hesitant to really make a decisive action. And you add that on top of Tobias Harris, who's playing much more decisively now, but didn't at times last year. And it's just an accumulation of it. It was tough to make use of the space and, and the uh, advantage that Embiid would generate. So I think it's it's there's a lot of factors going into it. I do think people are just going to look at it and say scheme. And I don't think it's I, like I think there's a lot more to it. Um, but look, you added two, I mean, Seth Curry is an elite off the catch shooter. He is a really, really and I don't think he's going to be as like this good all year, but he is an elite off the catch shooter that opens things up. When you, when you're talking about that upgrade from Josh Richardson, who, like I said, it's not just the fact that he was shooting like 34% on catch and shoot shots, which I think is what he shot last year. It's that he was hesitant to take them and he wouldn't take them on volume. And so many possessions would end up with what should have been an open shot or a quick pass to the corner that they would miss out on. Um, and the cumulative effect of that is that it uh, it makes Embiid's life so much easier, so much easier. Very much enjoying the stylings of Seth Curry, the driver, as well. I don't, you know, the, the Curry family they uh, they certainly teach shooting better, but uh, he he also has some of the the Steph craft, despite not being as athletic or as good of a ball handler. But uh, you know. I had to hear a lot the the classic line of Philadelphia always gets the wrong brother the the Jeremy Giambi and I forget the other one that uh, that people cite. Eh, let's give Seth Curry some credit. He's he's a pretty good player and uh, I mean, he's, he's certainly he's still the wrong Curry, but he's he's a pretty good player. No, no, no. I'm saying he's better than than Seth. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, but he certainly seems like a a really good fit. 
for this team. And yeah, I mean, you, you talked about the record scratches. There are times when Curry and Danny Green, it kind of looks like they screw up in those scramble moments, but they still keep the ball moving, which really gave me an appreciation for uh, for how screwed up last year was yeah. from, from a spacing standpoint. Is, because even when they screw up, it looks better than what oh, they yeah. did last year. It is interesting. like it, Because the last time we saw Embiid with really good spacing was 2017-18. Um, 2018-19 with Butler and, and Harris, they had enough talent to overcome that. And you could certainly make the case that, that was the best team that Embiid has had. But in terms of Embiid operating in the post, the, it hasn't really been designed around that since 2017-18. So I think some of that spacing issues may have sort of masked some of the progress that Joel was making in terms of reading the double teams. And now you're getting to see that progress fully fleshed out with team teammates that can really play off of him well. And I think we're, we're seeing it all sort of come together at, at once, uh, which is, it, it's fun to see. It's really fun to see. All right. Next one. All right. Hold on. Uh, okay. From Roman. Do you think Korkmaz deserves a play above Maxi? It feels like the foursome of Curry, Green, Maxi, and Shake are solid and Korkmaz's defense is such a liability that he has to outplay Maxi to get significant minutes. Well, that's another maybe. And uh, I will say, g- giving the bench the, the night shift moniker, was that, that was too quick. I, I will say that. They they quietly have stunk a little bit on the bench when you look. Or they, they haven't stunk. They, they're about a break-even group. But they, they certainly have not looked like the gangbusters unit that they looked both in the preseason and in the first game of the season. So I, I guess for me, so the thing with that bench unit, if you are going to play Dwight, and like Thibel is going to play, or maybe they shrink the rotation and Simmons is going to play. Is Maxi making shots at or near the level that the Corkster did last year? Volume and accuracy. Like, I think it is amazing that Maxi can attack even these half hearted closeouts and still find a way to get to the rim. He is legitimately fun. That play he made last night, where he, I mean, he, he basically unfurled his, his wingspan. Like shake to uh yeah. and look, I mean he was he was picking Malik Monk. It's not exactly the uh the biggest play in the world, but certainly has these flash highlight plays that A, I think speak well for his future, but for a veteran team, I, I think there's probably like an intangible benefit of okay, you have this happy go lucky rookie who's making plays and is kind of this new thing. I thought Matisse was basically saving this team in November, December last year. Um, I don't know. And then, and then, then you have Corkster, like was last season, a one-year fluke. Is, is he actually going to shoot that well? Um, I, I like Corkmaz more than I, I would say most people, just because I think his shooting, if it is real, it is such a critical element for this team. But look, like if Maxi can shoot it and, and that seems real, like he certainly brings more to the table than him in terms of ball handling, sure. defense, I mean, you've talked all about the point of attack stuff. So I guess, you know, to steal a Brett Brown term, the uh, the gym will speak. But I would say for now, like, I would probably have Korkmaz ahead of him. But if Maxi outplays him, yeah, absolutely. You know, that that would be a, a good scenario and something I wouldn't be uh, hesitant to turn over to to move him up in the, the order. I mean, I, I think the question is probably more um, Thibel versus Korkmaz. 
Korkmaz. Um, I would probably, I like having two ball handlers like that in that backup group. Um, I like what, I mean, what's astonishing about Maxi right now is pretty much everything in his game outside of that jumper is at an NBA level already. Like he, all of the other aspects of his game is ready to compete for the most part. Yeah. Not every night, but on, on some nights. His ability to drive and get to the rim and finish in the rim and, and defend his man has been, and make pretty good decisions with the basketball has been, I mean, for a, a rookie and a young rookie has been really encouraging. Uh, that shot is important, um, but I think he has, you know, right now I think what he can give you and what his upside can give you I think the question is probably a little more Thibel or um, or Korkmaz. Um, I mean, so to be fair, Maxie's playing almost 16 minutes per game, and, and some of those have been blowouts where, where he gets to play with the other group. We're talking about a difference of three to four minutes per game. It's not like they're going to be playing Cork 25 minutes a night. Um, basically, I don't mind either guy out there is what I would say. And yeah. it's... It's it's hard to say now because Korkmaz got hurt, what, like three minutes into the season, it feels like. Um, and he wasn't playing well. He wasn't shooting the ball well in those games. But, uh, like, I will say, when, when Korkmaz is bad and he looks, he's really bad, yeah, yeah. that's a guy you would take off the floor right away. Yeah. Maxi, despite being a rookie, like you said, has a more well-rounded game to the point where even if he is bricking shots, like, left and right, he still might be able to give you something on both ends of the floor that uh, that Cork uh, might not. Maybe you might have talked me into it. Maybe he should play over him then. Uh, I mean, none of those three players are anywhere near perfect players right now. So there is an argument for each. All right, this one, a related question from Uriah. Which young bench player do you think has the highest ceiling? Well, this one is definitely Maxi to me. Now, look, he's he's far away from the ceiling. But if he can learn to shoot not only off the catch, but also off the dribble. Yep. And I, I looked up his synergy numbers from Kentucky. He did a little bit of that. He was okay. He was like 50th percentile. That low release concerns me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And that, that causes him to take deeper shots. And we're still seeing that in the NBA a little bit. Like in college, you know, he would take a few steps off the three-point line. All right, so you're basically shooting an NBA shot. Well, in the NBA, you're shooting a, a bomb. And that's fine if he can make them, if he's... You know, if, if he has the Damian Lillard range, even if he has the Robert Covington range, Cov liked to shoot him from deep. And that didn't seem to affect his percentages all that much when he was in Philadelphia. Um, but then he, if, if he has that shot off the dribble, I mean, is the ceiling one of these star lead guards? That's a very unlikely outcome in my opinion, but like a starter, yeah. a, a pretty damn good one. Um, and I just, you know, I, I love what he can give off the dribble and, he seems like you said, like he's, he's a pretty good decision maker. You, you see the tools there to be a very good NBA player. And I would say shake is probably next among that group, but he does not have the juice, the, the, the shake that, uh, I always, I always do say that, but, uh, <laughs> that, that Maxi has. So, so Maxi to me is clearly the, the guy with the highest ceiling of that group. Yeah, I would, I would agree that Maxi has the highest ceiling. I think shake probably has the highest expected outcome. And, to have both of them, you know, I think Shake at this point is a pretty safe bet to be a pretty good NBA player. Does that mean starter? Does that mean six man? I don't know. We'll we'll figure that out later. But I think there's a pretty good bet that he is going to be a, uh, you know, pretty key part of this team. I do think Maxi has a little higher of an upside. I don't know if he's like I said. I think Shake is more likely to reach 
his version of the upside. But with how important shooting is, how important shooting is on his team, and what we know about Shake and his ability to shoot, uh, and the diversity of his shot profile, he is just a little bit of a safer bet. But I do think ultimate upside, whether that's likely or not, I think uh, I think you're probably right that Maxi has a higher ceiling um, by itself. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Shake is is certainly ahead of him, and Shake is not even shooting the ball right now. But I feel completely comfortable yep, with him as the uh, as the six man. All right, this one from Michael. What else do you think Ben can do other than shooting to take his next step up to help the team contend? So I had trouble with this one, which isn't a good sign, I don't think. I mean, I think he could shoot better around the rim and get fouled more. Yeah, drawing fouls and, and being willing to draw fouls and seeking out contact. That, to me, is is certainly where I would go, yeah. So, so that's the main thing. But what I find a little bit troubling about it is that there's not a ton else that he could do to help the team win. I mean, his defense... Looks pretty good to me. You know, they, they're the number one defense in the league. And again, I think sometimes the NBA.com shooting stats after a rough performance can be a smidge misleading. Um, you know, if Pascal Siakam shoots one for 10 against him, uh, Pascal Siakam shooting one for 10 against a lot of people right now. Yeah. Uh, but like his defense, it doesn't look like he has fallen off from the oh, all no. NBA pace dramatically. Nope. I thought in the Charlotte game, there were a couple plays he made. They, they weren't even one-on-one individual plays. It was with Embiid being more aggressive in the pick and roll against Biombo. He basically had to tag the roller and then run his guy off the three point line. And he's just a madman doing that. He does a really good job of it. And with the Sixers who have a defense, it seems like it's a little more proactive this year. Than past years, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but certainly not playing quite as passively as we saw in past years. That benefits Ben's um, style. Outside of that, like I feel like we've we're just reaching a ceiling, and it's it's a high ceiling, or uh, it's you know it's an all star level of play. But outside of diversifying the offensive game, that that's how you get better. Yeah, and like. You know, when we talk about shooting, and you took shooting off the table, and that encompasses a hell of a lot. That encompasses free throw shooting, that pulling up off the dribble, which, God, that would be great if you could do, but it feels like a fantasy. And that that's off the catch, you know, in the corner, um, like he showed the one time he took one. So that's a lot. And that's really important, both on ball and off ball. So to just take that out of the equation, it is, I mean, that that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, but if I'm going to go off to something else, it would certainly be, I mean, it, it drawing fouls, being comfortable, drawing fouls, um, being willing to go to the free throw line, which feels like it's still part of, of shooting anyway, but yeah, it, like he could, he could, he could draw a lot more. He could draw a lot more. He had one where he tried to do like an up and under twirling layup and you're never making that like, well, besides not shooting, like he, he doesn't have terrific touch around the rim anyway, but he gets caught in some of these low probability finishes because he just doesn't seem like he wants to go through contact and get to the free throw line. I'd love to see that change. He he had a couple moves at the beginning of the game against Charlotte where he was he was really pushing the ball in transition the first couple of possessions and there that was one of them. I think I think he he basically like went coast to coast three times and he scored once 
and then he missed the other two without getting fouled. And that one stood out as, oh, you really could have just go up you, strong, man. Yeah, you could have went up a little stronger. You did everything else right, and that's been a real strong transition push to completely avoiding contact at the rim. Yeah, and it's funny, like sometimes he'll he he's been using the the one footed runner with his left hand a yep. little more, which is, I mean that. It's just so interesting, like what shots he shoots with his left hand and yeah. which one he doesn't, because that is essentially a layup. But but he still shoots it like a uh, like a jumper, and and he really does seek out contact on that one. And the the problem is that's like a uh, that's a move a great shooter would do, and uh, he's made a couple of them, but it just hasn't uh, hasn't translated to the free throw line. So th- those are the main things. All right, so this one coming from. Did we get a question about the Eagles tanking, by the way? <sighs> Thank God, no. Oh, actually, it probably was. I probably just ignored it because I don't want to talk about it. Um, I could no. talk about it all day. I'll tell it. you what. The best thing about that Eagles season is it's over. Yeah, and it ended in the most embarrassing way possible. Love it. <laughs> could talk about that for forever. All right. uh, we've spent a lifetime talking about tanking. I know. That's why I love it. <laughs> you and I have gone the opposite way. I don't want to talk about it at all. I don't know. Um, especially with the football, people get really like, there's a, like we, we got sick of talking about the sanctity of the game. Like that's much, much stronger sentiment in football. Uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah, no basketball. There's, there's no, there's no sanctity. There's no, uh, e- even in the worst times with, with the Sixers, there weren't impassioned pleas to James Naismith didn't put the peach basket up for this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> Uh, I yeah I I made a mistake and, and commented once yesterday or two days ago on uh on Twitter about it and no well, I'm done look I'm the done. E, the e, one last thing and then we could stop the Eagles if if nothing they are pushing against conventional wisdom because conventional wisdom was that you couldn't tank in a football game because the players would get hurt and, and you can't do that oh contraire my friend <laughs> you can tank in a football game. <laughs> Hey, they really just needed to evaluate Sudfeld, who they've had on their roster for four years. I don't believe they're tanking. Anyway, uh, this one from David. What contract would Seth Curry get as a hypothetical free agent this offseason? You take this one. It's a good question. Um, Contracts a lot of times come down to the season that you sign them in. And the most obvious example of that is 2016. But in every season, there's more, more or less teams with cap space. There are the depth of the class is different. Uh, so it's sometimes tough to say. Here's what I'll say. Like, so Seth Curry, I think, has three years left and about $24.5 million. And I think it's on a declining contract. I would probably say, if you just ask, what's, what's his value to a team? I don't think it's going to be that huge of a spike where you go, oh, man, that guy should be making $20 million. Like, I don't think, I don't think he's that far underpaid. But I think it would probably, like, if you just had me throw out a number, it would be something like slightly more than the mid-level. Um, maybe a shorter deal, it would be 10 to $12 million. But I think he's worth more on the Sixers than he is league-wide because of who you're building around, because of what you need to surround them with. So I guess where I answer that, he's slightly underpaid, which means he's a great contract because it's locked in long-term. But because he's worth even more on the Sixers, it's a really great contract. Um 
So yeah, like I wouldn't go out and say he should be getting $15 million a year or he would get $15 million a year on the open market. I don't think he's getting that much money, but I think he is slightly underpaid and, and really good fit with the Sixers. Yeah, that sounds about right. And, and look, there are going to be moments, whether that comes in the regular season. I mean, I could see Brad Stevens posting his ass up like like he used to post up Redick all the time with Marcus Smart or somebody. Or, or that comes in the playoffs where he is going to get picked on, on, uh, on defense. Sure. And that's okay, because we knew what he was. But for for an $8 million a year player for three years, that is yeah. an excellent contract for this team to have. Excellent contract. All right, this one from Steve. Maury does a lot of media. For example, Sloan, uh, he operates more openly than Hinky. How much analysis does he keep behind the curtain? 20%, 80%. He seems to be more altruistic. Uh, however, I remember him saying like, that there is zero good data publicly available on defense. So how much is behind the curtain? So, so I'm going to turn this one over to you because this is more of you. But from what I remember, he still guarded the Rockets' internal stuff pretty tightly. I would say how much of his data is behind the curtain? All of it that he cares about. Yeah. <laughs> That's I mean, the way I would, I would answer it. He's willing to talk about public thing, like right. offensive, defensive rating. Like even, I mean, you can go even deeper than that, even more specific stuff that is public. But uh, it's yeah. an impossible question to answer because we don't know what their internal metrics and internal tools look like, which is specific because he doesn't want you to know what his internal metrics and internal tools Look like, yes, he is a big proponent of statistical analysis. He wants to get that more mainstream. He wants to, you know, with Sloan, get that out and, and become a more accepted part of both covering and, and, and thinking about the game. Yes, he's not going to tell you how he goes about it. Like, he's not going to come out here and tell us what they're prioritizing and what they're using. So what's behind the curtain? Like I said, all of it that he cares about. Here's a question that... I'm not sure you're even going to be able to answer, but I just thought about this. when. when Here's what I'll say about Sloan too. Like don't think of Sloan as like this in-depth statistical analysis conference. It's like, we go through the same, I swear it feels like it's the same five core presentations every year recycled for the, the the new season. It is much more of a, uh, and there, there is great work there. A lot of it is done in papers off to the side, not in the main conference rooms that fill up hundreds of people. But I, I don't think it's like the quite as much of a geek convention as people think. Like it's not as hardcore sports analytics as a, as you would expect. The, the question I had though, it, what do you think like in, internal da- data, what happens to that when there are a million former Rockets assistant GMs and staffers running other teams and working there are a few, teams yeah. Like- Obviously, like they're not giving it out to the public, but I I do wonder how that might affect how other teams go about business. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, like you have in Sacramento, uh, Monty, they work together in Minnesota. You have Sachin. You can can keep going to Hinky, you know, back then. Sure. But I think a lot of these people like there's um, I think it's it's it evolves fast enough that I would guess they're probably not super worried about that. But certainly, I mean, his approach is out there with other people, for sure. For sure. For sure. All right. So I think we have one more question here. Let me make sure I didn't miss anyone. Nope, didn't miss anyone. This one from Mount Airy SL. What specific improvements would you attribute to Doc and the coaching staff? 
A few that come to mind for him are Tobias's quicker decision-making, more corner threes, extra passing to find open shooters, etc. What do we think? So the word improvement is where I struggle a little bit with this question because it's hard to divorce what Doc is doing and all of the space that we've just been talking about for however long this podcast has been going on. Um, I I did look up some stats, though. And and again, this is early in the season. Maybe this changes a little bit. You look at their offensive shot selection, it's a little better, like a few less mid-rangers, but pretty much the same, despite better personnel. I mean, they're still shooting a decent amount of mid-rangers, and I can say we are a long ways off from Houston Rockets' Maury Ball. Um. You know, as for the players, I mean, we, we already talked about Ben. He's pretty much the same on offense. I, I certainly don't think his approach is is wowing any of us. Joe's approach is it's a lot better, but we, we already talked about that. He's attributing that to the, the personnel around him. Um, Tobias is the guy. <laughs> That's the one who stands out. It, it, as, mu- as far as individual players, those quick trigger threes with 20 seconds left on the shot clock, you know, they might not be great shots in a vacuum, but as far as like an indicator of where his head's at and where his uh, his offensive approach is at, those are critical. And and I know he's been making them and people will become frustrated when a few more of those start to miss and that's okay. Um, but the idea that Doc is a Tobias whisperer, which I got to say, we both kind of laughed at a little bit. Uh, not to say that, we were wrong yet, but it's it's off to a good start for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when, like, certainly um, Mount Airy here is talking about a lot of the success in the post and Embiid's success handling those and the quick ball movement leading to good shots that has resulted of that. And, you know, I think there could be some impact on Doc, you know, specifically in terms of, of I mean, like you said, we are seeing Simmons cut more. I do think at times he is dragging a defender or two with him that is helping. Uh, We are seeing, I think, Embiid have a little easier of outlets and they move a little bit more, not only just cutting off of him, but moving around the perimeter to get in better spots. I think you could say some of that. But I think the, not the vast, I think a very significant portion of this is that there's, he has more space to operate. It takes more for the defense to commit and get to him which makes the reads and the kickouts easier to see and diagnose. And you have players, you know, you, you when you're talking about Embiid, you have three, if not lights out shooters, real close lights out shooters who can all make pretty quick decisions with the basketball. And I think a lot of it comes down to personnel, um, which probably isn't going to shock too many people listening to this podcast. Um, that's why we complained about the personnel so much last year. That's why we talked about getting more shooting. That's why when the, they made the trades, we thought this is going to be really good. I mean, I wrote a piece before the season about how Seth Curry is a perfect role player to pair with Embiid and Simmons. So the fact that it's playing out, like I think that is, I think skill sets matter a lot, especially when you're talking about building around two very unorthodox, very, you know, players, stars with very pronounced weaknesses that you have to really focus a lot on to overcome. So look, I think Doc has had some impact on it. And the other part of the equation is, he's playing a lot of shit defenses right now. So all of these, um, all the success that they're finding before we start building a statue for doc and Danny green and Seth Curry and all, don't crown their new, ass. Don't crown don't them. Crown them until they play an actual good defense. Uh, so I want to see that too, but I certainly think they're moving a little bit more. 
Um, I think they are, I think the ball movement has improved tremendously. Um, whether that has much to do with Doc or just better decision makers, better shooters, better floor spacers around him. And I think the defensive improvement is a little bit. Like, I, I do think they could, they should have been more aggressive. And we talked about this on the last pod. You know, I think that's probably one area where you could say, even though it's not like a complete deviation, um, I do think it has been somewhat meaningful. And I guess the other thing, and this is completely nebulous, and I hate talking about it, but Embiid has been locked in and bought in more often than he was last year. And is that because of anything the coaching staff is doing? Is that because it's just a new season? Is that because he's enjoying playing the game more and the offensive success is fueling some of that um, focus? I don't, I don't know. But certainly if you just took a step back, you would say he has been more locked in than he has been in quite some time. And maybe Doc has some impact on that. When it comes to an on-court area, you mentioned the defense. That would be the area where I would give Doc a little more credit. And, you know, again, this feels more like a refining than wholesale changes when it comes to the process. They are, uh, they're not quite as militant as running people off the three-point line, but they're also not Milwaukee all of a sudden either. Yeah. Um, they're not New Orleans with Stan Van Gundy who are just giving up a million threes per game and are being successful doing that. You know, like you said, from time to time, they, they are bringing Embiid up a little higher. That That's easier against somebody like Biombo. You know, even Embiid was awesome against Orlando, but Vooch got him a couple times on that pick and pop. That's, yep. that's still a tough play for him to defend. You kind of look at their indicators, like the, the four factors. Not only are they the best field goal percentage defense so far, they're doing everything else a little above average, and that includes fouling less, and turning people over more, which is not an easy double to to pull. Um, and all of this has happened despite above average, uh, or no, a- average opponent three-point luck. So, again, I, I don't know, like, the competition has been what, what it is, but it's been a great start to the season for, for their defense. I don't, you know, is Dan Burke uh, the, you know, the hero of all this? I, I have no idea, but I would say that defense... Even even if we can't necessarily see what's happening, this feels like the type of defense that, that this team should have. And what I will give Doc credit for, and that that brings up a good point, we're not seeing shit. Like so, like in previous years, you would go in, you'd see some of the instruction coaches are giving them, you'd see what kind of game plan they're trying to implement. It would be a little bit. We'd only get ten minutes at the end of practices, but ten minutes is a hell of a lot better than zero minutes. So we yeah. it's we don't even get to see that aspect of it. Yeah. The the main thing I'll give doc credit for, and this isn't much of an improvement off last year's coaching is that he's getting this group to play cohesive basketball. Despite the fact that is a collection of new players having less practice time than he's ever had in two decades as an NBA coach, they were, we, we looked at the schedule and said, Hey, they're going to have a chance to, to get right, right away. I didn't think they were going to be blowing teams out like this. So for him to pull that off this quickly with such little preparation and, uh, and institutional knowledge with the players, basically besides Tobias and and Mike Scott, who apparently knows not what to do anymore. um, That has been really impressive. How is he doing it? I don't know. Yeah. All right. I think that is probably a good enough place Two cut it off there. Uh, they have Washington on Wednesday, Brooklyn on Thursday, Denver on Saturday, and then Atlanta on Monday. So a packed schedule coming up here. Doesn't get any, but doesn't really slow down after that either. Uh, we have a lot of games of basketball going coming up. Uh, so thank you, Rich, 
for jumping on, and we'll talk to you soon. See you, man.